Well, we're continuing our series in the seven deadly sins. We made it through lust on Sunday, guys. We did it. It's all downhill from here. I haven't gotten any angry emails yet, so that's good. And if you do, it's uh, Jim at BethanyAustin.com. He is the maturest saint on staff. So, um, but uh, I, I'm not old, but I'm not as young as many people think I am. I am old enough to remember a thing called boredom. Remember that? Boredom? Before you had a cell phone and you had the world at your fingertips all the time, where as a kid, you'd be bored and you just have to figure out things to do. And my brother and I, he's only 18 months younger than I am. We'd go to my mom and say, Mom, we're bored. And she'd say, Now, boys, remember, boredom comes from within. We're like three and four years old. Like, okay. <laughs> and this continued through our lives and in high school and Mom, we're bored. And then we just look at her and be like, I know boredom comes from within. And I could probably call her right now and be like, Mom, I'm bored. Remember, honey, boredom comes from within. And growing up, I had no idea what she meant. I was like, can you just give me a toy? Can you put it on TV? Can you like put food in my mouth? Something, please. And now I'm older and um, a little bit wiser. I, I finally understood what she was saying, that boredom wasn't something that happened outside of us, that boredom is something that's going on inside of us. It's, it's, you're not content with your inner life. Now, I don't know if a three or four year old is content with their inner life, but she was raising me up to, to kind of deal with that. And, um, often boredom is kind of associated with laziness, especially in our culture that we are very driven and success oriented. And what we're looking at this week is actually the sin of sloth, which for many associate with laziness of not doing enough work, not trying hard enough. And we will see in a, throughout um, tonight's teaching that sloth actually has nothing to do with how much work you do or how little work you do, but it actually has to do with your inner life, particularly your life with God. Now, uh, kind of the ancients have this word, acedia, and it means lack of care. And this is where the idea of sloth came from as it kind of morphed over time. And uh, in English theologian, he says, acedia is like a wet blanket that inhibits all energy and purpose. It's like a wet blanket that inhibits all energy and purpose. Last week, um, I, or last week on Sunday, kind of introduced where these seven deadly sins came from. Um, and they came from this monk, Evag- I almost have the name again. If you're here on Sunday, you know I'm struggling with this name, Evagrius. Everyone say it with me, Evagrius. Evagrius was a fourth century monk, and he, um, he spent much of his life writing to uh, the, and, and discipling younger monks. And he actually believed that um, the, this, he came up with these eight evil thoughts that his theory was, was not so much the, the problem wasn't so much the sins that we actually commit. Now, he didn't think those were good, but to actually overcome them, to grow in Christlikeness, we had to kind of dial in and dig at the root and figure out where, what actually gave birth to the sin. And it was, for him, it started in our minds that we had these thoughts, and he came up with eight of them. And then his disciple, Cassian, hijacked them and didn't give him credit because it was drama in the early church. And he came up with, with the seven deadly sins. Now, 
Now, another uh, uh, name that they had for the sin of sloth was the noontime demon. Huh, noontime demon. And what he noticed what happened, Evagrius, was uh, often the monks, when it came about anywhere from 10 to 12, they, they just didn't want to pray anymore. They started to get tired and just kind of distracted in their prayer. And they got our, our psalm reading this, more, or this evening was Psalm 91. And this is where they get that noontime demon where the psalmist writes, You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Now, for the ancients, especially when they were coming up with these eight evil thoughts or the seven deadly sins or go read the scriptures, um, they had the reality of this spiritual realm around us. And they kind of associated um, this, this acedia, this sloth, this noonday, noontime demon with the actual demon that would kind of oppress the, the monk in his prayer. And I have this picture. Um, this is called the um, Torment of St. Anthony. Uh, my namesake, not really, but, um, and they believe this is Michelangelo's first painting when he was like 12, 13, 14 years old. And um, St. Anthony, uh, he's being tormented by these demons. I keep it in my office to remind me that there's an actual spiritual battle going around. I like to joke, people come in and say, Pastor, what are those demons? And I say, they're church people, not these church people but the other church people, because I like these church people. But we have to kind of understand that was the worldview that many of uh, these early Christians lived in. And still, even today, I believe in this stuff, that there is a demon, there is a devil, and he he has his minions that are out to destroy us. But that context is important to understand. Because um, those, those monks, as they were praying, they started to grow dull in their devotion to the Lord. They started to actually resent the, the vows they had taken. If I were to boil down what the sin of sloth is in our modern language, I would simply call it this, spiritual boredom. A scholar on the writing of Evagrius, she writes, if this is true, excuse me, That we can widen the scope of what Evagrius meant by sloth to include the attempts we all make to evade what we really should be doing with our lives. Sloth becomes the pursuit of distraction, the deliberate uh, frittering away of time and the attempt to escape choice and commitment. It means keeping all possibilities open rather than committing ourselves to particular tasks, person, or way of life. She goes on to say, sloth touches us more deeply than we might think. For what Evagrius sees is that sloth is an attitude of mind and heart, a refusal to find purpose and meaning in the restrictions and requirements of daily living. Sloth is this just deep, apathy, indifference towards anything that has any sort of meaning or purpose behind it. Think back to about three years ago when the world shut down. And I know it was very hard for many, many people, but for some people, they saw this as a chance of like, remember a lot of us, like, I'm going to learn to bake bread. I learned how to make sourdough. 
That was great. Um, I'm going to learn a new language. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm just going to be so focused on Jesus. And then we just binged Tiger King. <clears throat> or whatever it may be that you ended up just wasting so much time. And for me in that season, I found it particularly hard to pray. I found it particularly hard to connect with God. I found it particularly hard to grow in my spiritual life. That I just started getting this deep indifference towards my creator. And the reason that happened for many of us is that our routines, our normal everyday life was interrupted. The things that gave us purpose, the things that gave us meaning, connections with other humans, going to a job that gave us a sense of identity, all these things had been stripped away. And it's no, um, it's no shock that this had a lasting effect on the church. The scholar Tilby, she argues that actually a seedious sloth causes deep spiritual harm. That engaging in spiritual practice when, practices when, when you are suffering from this sin actually can even become painful for people to engage in the God whom they once loved. And over the course of the last several years, we've seen that happen in the church. It's no surprise to anyone that our churches are far emptier than they were in February of 2020. And I... My, my hunch is that most of the faithful churchgoers that are no longer donning the doors of our churches didn't wake up one day and be like, I deny Jesus as Lord. I really think they gave in to the, the sin of sloth. That over a couple years, they just found other things to numb their hearts, their minds, and their bodies, and simply just walked away out of spiritual boredom. Now, all the, the early lists of the seven deadly sins, they actually place sloth at the top. Vagrius believed that sloth was the most deadly of all the sins because it just led to this life of apathy. But he also says that it, it could be the greatest gift when confronted and worked through and by the power of the Spirit living in you, you overcome it. It can be a beautiful gift. The scholar Tilby, uh, um, kind of commenting on Evagrius' work, says, Interestingly, Evagrius recognizes that the conquest of sloth, so overcoming it, brings about significant personal integration. No devils follow on from sloth. The person is left with a sense of peace and joy. Peace suggests harmony an ability to be free and content within the constraints of time and place. And joy is gratitude, a pleasure and liveliness to be in the place where we actually are, doing the things we actually do, loving the people we are called to love and finding rhythm of work, sleep, and leisure that is healthy and life-giving. To come through sloth is not only to believe in the goodness that God holds out to us, but to know it in body, mind, and heart. It's interesting, as I was reading up on this sin, this is the one I'm probably like 
least familiar with. Not that I'm saying it's the one I struggle with the least. Writing the sermon, I'm like, I don't want to do it. And I'm like, oh, it's the noontime demon. Cast you out in the name of Jesus. And um, I kind of joke, but that was one of the ways he said, get over it. Just like cast it out in the name of Jesus. But what I found so interesting on um, the writings of this is that how much so many writers talk about the necessity of the constraint of time and place and ability. That, that Evagrius, as he was writing to these monks, he was actually calling them to embrace the constraints of the life they had chosen, to get in their cell and pray, to devote their life to prayer. But he also encouraged them, find some simple work to do with your hands. Make sure you're eating food that's going to care for your body. Make sure you have times of leisure to have a rhythm and, and, uh, and a purpose in your everyday ordinary life. And so much of that goes against our current culture. Because we live in a time where we tell our children, and I grew up, I'm a millennial, I was told, you could be whatever you want to be, Anthony. I'm like, no, I can't. Like, I'm not going to be a professional athlete. Like, look at me. Like, I'm 150 pounds wet, and, like, you throw a ball at me. Eh, right? Not every single child is driven enough. I didn't say not smart enough. Driven enough to get into an Ivy League school. Like, it's just not going to happen. Not everyone is a snowflake. We all actually just are kind of average human beings for most of us. And that is Okay. Because once we embrace the constraints that we have in mind, body, soul, location, wherever God has placed us, there we can begin to find freedom in the constraints around us and say, God, what is it you actually want me to do in this time, in this place, with these people, with these gifts I have? But we live in a culture that is just curated by just... This, by social media, on Instagram, Facebook, the TikToks, whatever it may be, where people are putting up these false images and we fall prey to them, thinking we're missing out, we're having FOMO, and it creates um, this just desire to be somewhere else rather than where we are at. Last week, Pastor Danner, he preached on the sin of what? Envy, good. Uh, who was that, Brian? You get gold star. You were paying attention. Were you even here last week? Uh, if you weren't, I'd say that's impressive because you read the sign up there. You can read. Good job. And, uh, but he talked on the sin of envy and really the heart of envy, the, the thing that's going on there is we want something that we don't have. Simple as that. We want something that we don't have. And as we're going through this series, we are looking at the different uh, beatitudes that Jesus gives at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, these blessings. And he looked at um, Matthew 5, 4, where, where Jesus is blessing. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, envy and mourning, what does that mean? And he gave us this permission to, to sit back and be honest with God about the things that we don't have that we wish we do and just simply say, God, this makes me feel fill in the blank. And it's there as we mourn those things, we can begin to be comforted by the Lord. 
And the beatitude this week is from Matthew 5, 6, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You see, ascidia, sloth, we're often, we are hungering and thirsting for the things that we don't have, for the life circumstance which we, we wish we had, for the spiritual experience we wish we had, for the, the Bible teacher we wish we had, or the, the worship music, or whatever it may be, where we're, we just become numb to the things around us. But Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Satisfied. Commentator on this beatitude, he goes on to say, Jesus blesses those who are looking for God to come with righteous deeds of salvation and i would add in this context with righteous deeds of salvation right now we believe the grass is always greener and the sin of sloth takes us away from where we actually are and makes us believe this lie that things would be better somewhere else But when we thirst and hunger for God's righteousness here, we're actually saying, God, help me embrace the ordinary, mundane, boring parts of my life. And that's totally against what our culture teaches us to live like. And even the church, honestly, the church in the West, it's all, a lot of times it's about hype. It's about the next spiritual experience, the next great worship song, the next preacher, the next whatever it may be. And we're always trying to escape reality instead of living within the constraints God has called us to live within. The answer to the, the sin of sloth, I wasn't joking really, as you go read through some of the the, the church fathers and mothers, they really say, like, they believed it was this noontime demon. Even Luther, like, be away from me in the name of Jesus. Call it out. Cast it out. It's from the devil. But also, it sounds very churchy, look to Jesus. Fix our eyes on Jesus. The answer to this is the incarnation. God came down in flesh in an ordinary baby born in a less than ordinary backwater town to less than extraordinary parents. And the Gospels record about three years of his life. What did he do the first 30 years of his life? He carried on his father's business, not his heavenly father, his earthly father's business, living just an ordinary, mundane life. And I wonder for us living where we live, that we actually live a pretty extraordinary life compared to most of the world. I wonder if the answer to overcoming the spiritual boredom isn't focusing so much on Jesus' three years and trying to emulate that of miracles. And I believe, I still believe the Spirit moves in powerful, miraculous ways through Jesus' followers. But if we, what if we just learn to live ordinary, faithful mundane lives where we began to ask the holy spirit to show us the meaning in changing diapers and balancing excel spreadsheets and going home after work and putting the kids to bed or helping out with the grandkids and just being faithful where we are at to create a rhythm 
where God is active in everything. As Jesus says in that beatitude, when we learn to do that, when we learn to seek his, uh, to thirst and hunger for righteousness, we will be satisfied. Amen.